Welcome to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Englander. Today's episode is sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. And in light of today's topic, which the guest and I largely focused on, which was honesty, I don't want to just plug our company. I want to talk about, you know, a time when we weren't as strong as we are now, where the results weren't as good as we would want them to be or our clients did, but also where we managed to turn it around. I think this is good because it'll give you context on, on what we're doing, which might be helpful in your own endeavors. But also, I think it will help you understand the space of demand generation or lead generation a little bit better. In, in the early days of our company, we were trying to do what we observed other companies doing. The millions of other lead generation companies, okay, maybe not millions, but you know, the many other lead generation companies that were selling based on cheap, quick, fast results. And these are the guys that are probably hitting you up in your inbox and on LinkedIn and so on several times per day. Since the agency space was our specialty and this was how we saw the market selling services kind of like ours, this is how we sold the service as well. And we thought that we could do it. After all, everybody else seemed to be doing it. It's the sort of thing where we were saying, you know, in 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, we're gonna get you dozens and dozens of leads. The problem is when people hear lead, oftentimes they don't really stop to think about what that is. And all a lead is, all lead really should be in anyone's head, is somebody that's the right fit, that's a decision maker and the right sort of company that wants to have a business conversation with you about your offering. So our clients, even in the early days, were selling high-end services. We're talking very bare minimum, maybe 50K first-year values, all the way up to the million-dollar range. Getting a marketing decision maker to have a business conversation with you for a service like this, frankly, isn't easy. It's hard. It takes time. It takes a lot of consistency, and it takes a lot of tweaking the machine to improve the results over time. That was the reality of the situation, but that's not how we sold it. So our clients came in with the wrong expectations. They were thinking about getting a whole lot of leads really fast. Unfortunately, every single week, if not every single day, I have a conversation with a new agency owner that has been burned by a lead generation company. They were promised quick, fast, and cheap results, which rarely, if ever, happen when you're talking about services in the six and seven figures being sold to large companies. So that's no longer how we present our service. It takes time, it takes effort, but it's worth it. It's worth it to get the consistency. It's worth it to develop habits that somebody else for you, i.e. us, gets to do on your behalf so that you can focus on more client service, more, for that matter, ideally focusing on actually closing the business as opposed to generating the appointment. And the way that we do this, the way that we set up every engagement is by building the strategy first with enough time built in for us to actually go back and forth on it and get it right before we go into any sort of engagement. Lead generation is not plug and play, although there are many lessons that we have learned Although there's a database that we lean on to move a lot faster than our clients ever could themselves, there's no one-size-fits-all templating. And if you're interested in learning more about this process and how we build the strategy, you can connect with us at saleschema.com. Today's guest is Peter Kozadoy. Peter is a partner and chief strategy offer at Jim Advertising. Jim is a New Haven, Connecticut-based agency focusing on PR and digital marketing for several different verticals, including finance and health. 
Peter is also the author of Honest to Greatness. It's a forthcoming book about how organizations can use honesty to improve pretty much all aspects of their operating model. Peter and I also discussed his role as CEO of Stradesso, a forthcoming organization that essentially acts as a marketplace between creatives and the people that need their help. We talked about a lot of the challenges of running the agency these days and really, you know, how honesty has played into that, how Peter and his team have approached client attrition and the way that they've gone about building a software model to offer new solutions to the marketplace and deal with these issues. This is one of those episodes that definitely falls into the recurring theme of software eating the world, but I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I think that you're still going to get a lot of, you know, chicken soup for the soul if you're an agency owner from this one. So without further ado, please welcome Peter Kozadoy. Peter, thank you for being on the podcast. Appreciate it. More than happy. Thank you. Yeah. So we, we've talked for a while and, you know, you're, you're leading Jim and you have another venture and you also have plenty of books and, and media appearances as well. Maybe for everybody, if you wouldn't mind just kind of giving us a quick rundown of what you're working on now and, and the new things you're rolling out, that'd be really helpful. Happy to. Yeah. So started, founded Gem in 2008, which was, you know, a splendid time to start a company when I got out of college. So it's been 10 good years. Gem's an international marketing agency, full service, been on the Inc. 5000 list last couple of years in a row. And that's gone really well. And through all of the stupid mistakes I made, Dan, and lessons learned, now I've kind of branched out and I do a lot of coaching of other entrepreneurs, helping them build their own first million dollar company since I saw how important it is to you know, to once you get to that level, for some reason, there are all kinds of resources available to you. And below that, it's just a struggle bus. So I'm helping coaching other entrepreneurs. I'm writing a book, just submitted it to the publisher the other day called Honest to Greatness about the connection, the positive connection between organizational honesty and business profitability. So it's a pretty good passion of mine, just having worked with clients for the past 10 years. And the most recent thing, I'm a founder and CEO of a tech company, SaaS platform called Stradesso. And that's sort of taking the gem model of providing agency services and completely breaking it apart and building an Uber-like marketplace. Right. And, you know, I think we're all taught about honesty from, from a young age and how important it is and everything. What I guess, what was it that made you have the breakthrough that it's really the thing to focus on and to optimize for above all else? And then on the agency side, because that's kind of our audience, how, how has it affected how you sell your, your services at Jim in particular? Totally. So that's a great question. And it's out of Jim that I kind of came to this, you know, honesty produces greatness hypothesis. And the thing is, Dan, like for all these years, and as we grew, we got bigger clients and so on and so forth. I used to sit around and wonder, like, what, why is it that we give the same growth strategies that we know work to 10 different clients and two of them take them and get like a 6x ROI in what we do? And the other eight just like blow up on the launch path. Like they, they just don't even get out of the starting gate. And for the longest time, I scratched my head over it. It was like, like, what is it? I thought maybe like, are all these CEOs so moronic that they can't get out of their own ways and like move the organization forward? And no, that's not the case. That was my ego and, and hubris interfering. It's not stupidity. Everyone who gets to that point is actually quite smart. What I actually came to realize is that it's something far worse, which is that these leaders weren't willing to be honest with themselves on a variety of bases, honest about 
where the kind of the world is going, transforming into this, you know, digital world we live in, not honest about the industry they're in and how fast it's moving, not honest with the people in their organization that actually knew exactly what to do, you know, the people who interfaced with customers and had that real-time feedback, the valuable insights that they should have been acting on. And finally, not honest with themselves, that their own limiting beliefs and their own kind of power struggle was holding the organization back. And so I was so fascinated by the seeing the difference. I asked myself, I wonder if that's the key, you know, at large. And what I found in my book, which you can pick up in about a year, is that big organizations like Quicken Loans and uh, Berkshire Hathaway and Domino's Pizza actually have used honesty as a strategic tool to dominate their industries. And I said to myself, holy shit, I think I actually figured it out that like, there's this underlying fundamental that a lot of leaders really don't get. And to your point, we're taught what it is from a young age. It's like, oh, yeah, duh. And yet it's so hard to come by. Yeah. And I've noticed the same effect in my business. And, you know, for years we were never patently dishonest, but I think we maybe without being conscious of it made it seem like what we do is is easy, which is essentially get opportunities, get, get you know, leads on the line in the enterprise space for agencies. And then eventually we changed it to being more like, hey, what we do is actually really hard and we do it all day. So we're probably going to be better at it than you are because we can focus our attention on it. But it's not easy and it takes time and, and so on and so forth. And from that, it really improved things and it, it, you know, it built a lot more connection and a lot more trust and so on and so forth. Is there anything tangibly you know, that you can, you can impart to other agency owners that you guys started doing differently on that front that, that helped you guys in a similar way maybe? Yeah, I'd say one good example, and it depends on how you define the word good, is we're a lot stricter now about the types of clients we take on. And it's not like we reject clients when they ask us, like, you know, what what kind of company do you want to work for? Or the better one, like, what's the difference between companies who do really well with you and don't? When I get that question, I honestly tell them. And my answer is, if you did a map of our all our clients over 10 years, the ones who just give us money and say, go grow my company or I'll fire you, and that's it, we crush it for them. They do great. And the ones who want to micromanage every single shade of blue and they want everything to match their personal preference, even though they're not their own customer. And like, we just, and I'll have this conversation with them live at the table. Like we get bogged down and it doesn't work. And subliminally, they're getting the message that like, if they want to be the Monday morning quarterback, we're probably not the agency for them. Now, Dan, has that probably lost us business? Yeah, I'm sure it has, but it's, you know, ultimately not worth it. You know, when, when a client, when a bad client who doesn't fit our culture leaves, what happens? All of us at the agency take a big sigh of relief. Of course, the loss in revenue hurts, but you know we only have one life. Are we really going to spend it hitting our heads against a wall because there's a values mismatch? Uh, now, you know, in my younger days, I would have said, "Who cares?" Now that I'm an old man, I'm like, "Yeah, you know, it's it's worth it to do the right thing." Right, right. That makes sense. And is is there is there a process that you go through with with new clients or with new prospects? to ensure that they're being honest with you in the same way that you are with them? Is there some way? Yeah, great question. One of the most favorite services we offer is one right off the top, which is a strategic communications audit. And what we do is we go into all, and we assist on going into all the layers of the organization from the board and the C-suite executives right down to the frontline employees. And what we typically find, and I talk about this in my book, is that the employees who are closest to the customers really have a handle on what's going on, what the business is not doing a good job at, what needs to get fixed, and so on and so forth. And we compile all that data 
and those focus groups and a survey into a nice package and present it back and be like, here's what your organization's telling you. Here's what your prospects, customers, and all this stuff. And then we just kind of watch and wait and see <laughs> what happens. And the president of Domino's Pizza told me a similar story where he did the same thing at Domino's and presented all that data to the then CEO. And he talks about, you know, to the CEO's credit, the CEO said, okay, I, I believe it. That makes sense. Let's change. And that's, if you remember, when the CEO went on national television and said, you know, hey, everyone, I'm sorry, but our pizza sucks and we're going to make it better. And from that point forward, they outperformed the stock market by 16 to 1. So, you know, the answers are always in the client. And, and so we look for the client to recognize that. On the other hand, we've performed such things and handed back all this data. And the, CEO, the president and CEO will look at it and be like, yeah, I know, but that's probably not true. Or you probably didn't get the right sample size. You probably didn't. And at that point, we'll, we'll pretty much call it a day. You know what? I don't. We're probably not the right people for you. Right. And, and to dig into that a little bit more, and that sounds like a really valuable process for, for these companies to go through and for you to go through to make sure you have a good fit. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm wondering about is how do you, how do you detach that from the sort of sales process where everybody's kind of playing this game, right? You're, you're playing the game because you know you want to help your client, but you, you need to win their business in order to help them. And they want to decide how they want to run their company and they might want to put you in one place and put somebody else in another. They want to preserve their resources and their money and make sure that they're getting a good deal. So it sort of breeds this ground where there's incentives to not be completely honest. Mm-hmm. So there's their way that, you know, for example, the one way that we've gotten over that is to get people to actually pay us for the strategy so that they show up and take it seriously. And there's not this pressure anymore of, you know, you, you just, them just being sold on something. They could be transparent with us because they're, they've already invested in getting good information. Sure. Is there anything like that that you've had to deal with in terms of that strategic plan? Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know that we've exactly figured it out because people's psychology is people's psychology. And I'd, right. I'd venture to say, as much as I preach honesty, a lot of people prefer to be lied to. And it's sort of this weird thing. And we have this thing about like buyers are liars. Well, there's this other thing too, where like, Sometimes they want to hear what they're searching for a solution. That solution may not even exist. And if you tell them it exists, then they'll buy it. They'll be unhappy later. So we really, there's a couple things. We try to play the long game and we try to educate from day one. Like even if we just had prospect in here, they're thinking about putting out an RFP and we took a half hour with them and on the whiteboard sketched out, Hey, this is how growth marketing works today. Here's some of the pitfalls. Here's what happens when you arrange your media this way. And we just... You know, we feel like if we're the teachers and we do that good thing, then they're going to walk away from our conference table, at least knowing what we can do and understanding our methodology and our values. Whereas our competitors, you know, they may not get that same thing because our competitors might be looking to say what they want to hear, sell. I mean, I, I actually think, Dan, you know, increasingly so buyers are much more weary to the sale, right? Sales right. is much harder, but in some ways that makes it easier. And this is kind of part of my thesis that it forces all of us to just be extremely transparent from the beginning. I just wrote an article today that was like, hey, if you're looking for a marketing agency, here are the five things you should look for. Here's the pitfalls of some things you thought you might be looking for that you probably shouldn't. There are people who will read that article and be like, well, Gem's not the right agency for me. That's okay. Yeah. And I think it dovetails with with a lot of things, especially the idea of the long tail and about the idea of niching down and focusing on a particular type of buyer. You know, with that in mind, I, I one thing that you come across a lot, I think, as you know, you go after bigger and bigger companies is making sure you're talking to the right person. Because you might be telling the truth and you might be completely honest. 
but you might be talking to somebody that just doesn't have enough skin in the game and they're more, totally. they're, they're playing politics, right? They're more concerned with their own position than the long-term well-being of their company. And so this might be a really tough question to answer, but is there any way you guys have gone about juggling that issue or approaching that? Yes, because we've recently actually dealt with it. We had a CMO leave and uh, we stayed on with the client and they didn't replace the CMO. They replaced the CMO with two very junior people who were much more about job preservation than advancement. And that's a problem. And so we went, we went around them to the CEO and said, look, spend a million dollars a year with us. So, you know, we are going to loop you in. You can delete our emails. You can ignore us, but we don't feel that it's right for all this activity to happen without key oversight. We want you to know we're working on your behalf and that we care. And who can take issue with that? Yeah. Right. Sometimes it's just that simple. You just have to go far enough up the line. One thing that we've had challenges with, and I think every agency I talk to does, is balancing the idea of of long-term thinking and the importance of that. And that's really what every agency wants to be is somebody that can be a long-term partner because that's what's really needed to make the change that needs needs to be made totally. versus versus this this other dynamic which is like the internet and technology and the freelance economy brings everybody so much optionality at all times that there's a much higher cost to settling in for the long haul with any particular party. So it's always this sort of like tension and this push pull between de-risking things for people and giving them the long-term solution that you know they they need. Another tough question, you know, how have you guys gone about approaching that massive challenge? Yeah, good question. So there are two, we bifurcate the market, all right? And this is a recent revelation, by the way. You know, really what happened with us, Dan, is we were cruising along, you know, two years on the Inc. 5000 list. And then to your point, we had bigger and bigger clients, one left, and all of a sudden we're dropping a million dollars in revenue saying, holy crap, you know, th- this is perhaps unsustainable. And they get, made us look at the industry, the agency business, the headwinds we have, and the types of clients there are out there. Now, we have clients who would never leave us because we've stuck by them. There's a values match. There's trust. And I think there are a lot of clients for whom they want that long-term relationship. My estimation is those are few and far between. I think most clients will sit across the table and say they want quality when really they want fast and cheap. And it's through that revelation and this sort of freelance economy you alluded to that we created the tech platform we created, Stradesso, which again, you know, breaks apart this relation, this HR relationship that a creative person and a client has to have and instead says, forget the HR, let's just connect the marketing project, whatever that is, to a freelancer or agency employee with excess bandwidth. Let's get that person paid and get the client's project done for, you know, a quarter of the cost and, you know, a quarter of the time and connect those things like Uber. And that way, you know, we get rid of the HR problems for the customer who either isn't sophisticated enough to know that they need a long-term strategic partner, or as many customers are, they think they're a creative director or everyone thinks they're a marketer and can do it themselves. So we're like, okay, great, do it yourself. Here's the platform to do it. Right. And what are your thoughts about their ability to actually do that for themselves? So if you're, I guess, first of all, you know, what market are you going after for us or Stradesso, which is, yeah. if I can talk about the name of the company. Absolutely. One of the biggest markets we think will be other agencies. Mm-hmm. And here's why. If I'm an agency owner and I get a new client, I'm faced with, can I take my creative director and you know, copywriter and design the staff I have? And what's the best use of their time? So they, we could go freelance and they could manage a freelancer, but that could be expensive and has sort of inherent risks. What if they move to Thailand for a year and don't talk to anybody, whatever. And then on the other hand, I could hire someone, but then what happens if I lose that client? Then I have to fire them. That's not really fair either. So I think other agencies will get really smart 
and use Stradesso to get all the projects they have to get done, you know, 80% of the way there, and then take them off the platform, polish them, and pass them on. I mean, everything on our platform, from marketing collateral to ads to brochures, is under 300 bucks. So imagine, you know, if you're charging a client 1500 for a brochure, you can go through four of these things, versions, and, you know, find one you like, pass it on, you still get a 50% margin. Right. And one thing, you know, because there's different, there's different markets that have sprung up for, for service work. There's the Upworks of the world. There's the, the design pickles and that sort of yep. thing. One challenge of of starting a market that I've always you know seen is is that what makes it a real black belt move is this sort of catch twenty two, in that you need the the sellers for the buyers to come and you need the buyers for the sellers to come. How have you guys? And I know it's early days, so you know you're, maybe you're still figuring it out. But how have you guys started to approach that? that totally. Issue? Well, I'll I'll tell you what was part of this aha moment was that we get untold amounts of applicants every day to gym. Every day, I'm getting resumes in my inbox and filing them. And I had, you know, a thousand of these people that are, I'm sure, are great, but I just didn't have a need for them, so I didn't look. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking about Stradesso on the client side and talking about this problem that, that you've illuminated. And I said, you know, I've got all, I've got hundreds of people who are just sitting there. You know, let me reach out to them and see if they will take a test for free, so we can bet their skills and agree to get projects to deliver to their inbox. They're not going to be high paying, but they don't have to go get the client, so they might be able to do it. Well, <laughs> let me just say the response has been overwhelming. I mean, it was very easy to get. We got 200 responses back within the first 24 hours. Half of them took the test. We vetted and got 10 on board already, and we haven't even launched yet. So yeah, I really don't think that's going to be a big challenge because, listen, if you're a really talented copywriter and designer, you're probably also not a talented new business developer. And mm-hmm. so if we're getting the projects for them. We're, you know, we're really streamlining their process and we, we let them do what they do best. Yeah, and I think that's that's really key. It's sort of taken for granted in this this age of uh, freelancer liberty and being able to sort of be be your own shop. Sure. Is that you? Everyone's sort of tasked with becoming a salesperson, <laughs> which is oh. a lot to take on, as, as you and I both know. So I totally, think more and more aggregation platforms there are, the, you know, the more outlets they're going to be for people like that. So you mentioned the the sort of the tough spot of of losing big clients, and that's sort of what's pushed you to the to the software model. Was there anything else that anything else you're seeing in terms of writing on the wall with the agency model that sort of pushed you this way? And you know, I, I guess the bigger question is why do you think the agencies are failing in this day in, this day and age, and how can the savvy agency stay ahead of those issues? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, and I actually don't know any you know national stats on whether agencies are or aren't doing well. Sure. I can tell you that you know being a member of entrepreneurs organization and the Young Entrepreneur Council. I two days ago had lunch with a friend of mine in New York, ex agency owner. Just today, talking to another ex agency owner, and they all say the same thing that that you know. I think agency owners are probably some of the smartest people in the workforce. And I don't mean that to pat myself on my own back, but to own a communications agency and to do communication strategy on behalf of clients, you have to really be a well-rounded expert in operations, communications, marketing, advertising, PR. I mean, you really have to know your stuff. And I think a lot of these people, and I've heard this from my friends, people I talk to on the phone and my own experience, we get so frustrated by clients who don't have that same sort of background and acumen. And that's okay. Their clients are not supposed to also be experts. But then to my earlier point, they also don't get honest with themselves and listen to the agencies that they hire. And I hear that across the board from all kinds of agency owners I talk to. And if there are agency owners listening to this, I'm sure they're nodding their head like, oh, yeah. The agency owner I talked to today was like, yeah, this would be all wonderful if it weren't for the clients. And he too jumped ship 
and started not a tech company, but another sort of company that he's going to use his marketing resources to, to grow that for himself because it reduces all the frictions of having clients. So I think those are some of the bigger you know things. And then we also have this economy of everyone can do it themselves. And so that makes everyone think they're a creative director. Right, right. That's interesting. And you know, I, I'm sure you've had this experience too, but there's definitely the more I learn, the less I know dynamic as I, as I get deeper into the agency space. And it's very, it's very, I, I'm not, you know, taking any sort of moral high ground because I do this probably once a day in terms of the client's stupid, the prospect's stupid, they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> sometimes they really don't, you know, sometimes I, I know that I'm right. But then other times I learn more about a particular industry and there's just a dynamic that I didn't know was there. And there's a reason that they did or haven't been doing something they should have, that I think they should have been doing for a long time. Have you had any of those moments in, you know, with your industries? And I'd love to hear, you know, how that, how that panned out for you. Totally. Yeah. And all the time. I mean, I can't be a preacher of honesty and then not get honest with myself that, you know, frequently I'm, I'm incorrect. I think the the key is collaborating towards like to your point just because strategies a b c and d won't work for any one a variety of reasons it doesn't mean that someone in the industry shouldn't still be pursuing a different and better way to do it mm-hmm. and I think that's kind of what happens that people throw their hands up and say like okay well let's not touch our communications or our marketing materials or whatever because nothing works in this industry. I, I hate that. And I also hate when like people can't step out of their industry and cross pollinate. Like a big reason why we've been able to have success for a lot of our clients is because we used things that were not in that industry at all to begin with. And those were really brave leaders that we were very fortunate to work with who, again, just said like, you know, go grow us. I don't care how you do it. And how we did it was we didn't stay, you know, focused on the industry. We did it from outside. And, and those are the people who are, you know, who are doing really well. I'm not sure that answered your question. No, I, I think, I think it does, you know, the idea of taking, taking lessons from one place and putting it into another is, is, you know, I think one of the more underappreciated ways to innovate as opposed to coming up with something that is uh, completely new. Would you mind going, you know, talking about some examples there? Oh, gosh, sure. I mean, we, one of our greatest successes, you'll never believe was a client in the ENT space, ear, nose, and throat, okay? This company literally shoves a balloon up your nose and inflates it and makes your passageways larger so that you don't get as many sinus infections and so on and so forth. What could be more unsexy than that? And we rapidly grew their business. I mean, he stood up on a national stage in front of ear, nose, and throat doctors from nationwide and said, for every dollar I spend with these guys, I get $6 back. And do you know what the reaction was, Dan? Uh, shock and awe. <laughs> I don't no, know. It was crickets. It was crickets. <laughs> do you think we would have gotten a lead or two out of that? No. I would hope so, yeah. No. no. So they're just, like those are the moments that we looked at each other and said, there's something else that's really broken about the way that you know either these particular leaders go about business or the way others do. It's almost like they can't process that level of disruption. I mean, if I showed you an investment you could place in the stock market that you were going to, you know, sextuple your investment, what would you say? I'd be all over it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that was that was a really eye-opening moment. That was one of the first times we looked at each other and said, "All right, what is it? What's going on here? Like, what's the underlying issue with them? What's the underlying issue with us? Because that's just as important." Right. And if you had the diagnosis, do you think it's more that they just don't completely trust it? Like they've heard that pitch before and they're just skeptical? Or do you think it's just the pain of change is too much? And they just. I think it's the pain of change only because this, this, I mean, 
this was their own peer whom they had known for years came to these conferences delivering this message. And we, we didn't pay him to do that, you know, and he knew a lot of these people personally. So in that particular instance, we know it wasn't a trust issue. I think it was, I think there were a lot of assumptions made like, well, they must have some special sauce we don't. Oh, I bet it's what's going on in their particular market, in that particular state, or with their particular employees, or their doctor must be more talented. It was everything else except the marketing. Yeah, yeah, so. that makes sense. One thing that that I've encountered a lot that you probably are seeing more of because you know you're you're doing lots of coaching of early stage businesses, and I think this ties into the advertising world a lot is the idea of the sort of millennial mindset to approaching a business, which I don't think is good or bad, but it seems to be the goal is more to build something so that you can sell it as opposed to the sort of uh, you know quintessential Japanese style approach of working for works reward. I'm in the, I'm in the client service business. I'm in this for the long haul. Is that something you're seeing as well? And how is that affecting, in your estimation, the way that, that agencies are progressing and the way that new agencies are, are approaching these problems? Yeah, that's a good question. And the answer is that agencies, you know, it's very difficult to scale and sell an agency. And even if you do, you're going to get, you know, one or two times revenue. So it's really any one of us would be better served in, for instance, the tech space where you're mm-hmm. going to get, you know, 10 times revenue and nobody even cares if you make a profit. It's just ridiculous. So the people who get into agency business now, I'd say you have to love the work. And the reason why I'm still here is I actually do love the work. Like I love seeing clients actually grow and say, wow, marketing does work. And you know, all those kind of revelations. And I, I like working closely with clients and I like the cleverness of it all. But I would say to your point, this is very much a lifestyle business. It's a constant grind. New business development is a constant grind, as you very well know. So yeah, I mean, this is not the space to come in and, and scale and sell unless you have a really, really good friend who works in private equity. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess one thing that I see a lot of is agencies that are trying to get leveraged by developing software for use in their processes or side projects that might be a little more detached, but kind of tie into what what they do. And I'm not sure how much Stradesso and Jim are connected, but are there any interesting examples you've seen of that, of people trying to build moats or intellectual property around their agency services that you find to be particularly compelling? Yeah, I mean, I've seen plenty of examples, none of which I find particularly compelling. I think, I mean, this is conjecture. I think the reason why is because they still came at it with the agency mindset. Whereas, to your question, Jam and Stradesso are completely separate. They're completely separate companies. They have completely separate goals. Like They have completely separate markets. And the reason for that is we wanted to learn from all the mistakes we made as it, with an agency hat on and say, all right, what if everything we believed as agency owners, the opposite was true? That's one of my favorite strategic questions to ask. Like, what if the opposite were true? And that's that was one of the insights that led to Stradesso. Like, we have all these clients telling us that they can handle, that they are creative directors and that, you know, they can oversee and they want to hire in-house and they want fast and cheap. Okay, what if we were wrong? They were right about that. What kind of tool can we build them? And that's that's exactly how we got here. Uh, and they, you know, of course, we're both right. We're all right. Different markets. So yeah, I could have never made that switch if I hadn't taken my, you know, the agency hat off of yes, but I know the handholding works, and I know the multiple approaches works. I know that I had to forget all that, and that's okay. Right, and that's I think uh, it's it's one of those lessons that's simple but not easy to to learn and apply. Where you know it's it's very it's very easy to to observe something in the market and then sell people what you know that they need 
well, kind of ignoring what they tell you they want, you know, and I think we did that for a while in the very early days where I knew that these agencies needed better sales processes and coaching and stuff like that, but they never perceived that as their problem. They right. wanted more at best. They just wanted more prospects in the pipeline, basically. So that's what we did. We, we you know, that's where we, where we started. And even if they do graduate to other things, either with us or partners or whatever, you have to start at that place of giving people what they want. So, you know, I guess with, with that in mind, how have you applied that? If you, if you think it to be true, you know, what, what was there something that you keep hearing from clients about them telling you that, that I want this thing, you know, dirty, fast, cheap. What was it that finally made you say, okay, let's give it to them now. <laughs> because I mean, obviously we're not unsuccessful. I mean, we're a multi-million dollar sure. company and that's all well and good. But once we reached a peak in our growth and we looked at like, okay, where do we get all our clients? And is that sustainable? Like our, you know, warm referrals and networking and someone I happened to meet at last night's dinner, is that really a sustainable new business development pipeline? Not really. And so with a lack of a sustainable new business development pipeline, it was up to us to look at that and be honest with ourselves and say, what kind of company and business have we built? If we can't even pin down where the sustainable new business is coming from, there's probably something broken here. And that's why we went back and sort of took a look at, all right, well, if we were to create a new business development pipeline, who would it serve and what would they want? What would it be for? And then couple that with gem strengths. We're not B2B experts. We're awesome at B2C. And so Stradesso as a B2C company is going to benefit from everything we're good at. If we were great at B2B, we would be great for ourselves. <laughs> and so, right. you know, there's that, you know, again, honesty, right? So yeah, I mean, that's that's when we really took a look at it and said, what if they're right? Okay, if they're right, let's take this to market. And before we built anything, we actually pinged a lot of our older clients, newer clients, people we knew in the, in the community and said, we want to run this idea by you. Would you use this? How would you use it? What would you pay for it? And got some really great, great feedback. Right. And that's, that's important. I think, you know, you mentioned that there obviously is a grind in sort of this B2B agency sales process. And that's, of course, what, what we help with a lot. Within that, you've probably learned a few things. Like, you know, what, what have you guys tried that, that didn't work? And what have you learned through? Oh, what haven't we tried? Yeah. yeah. We've probably tried every single tactic imaginable. And over, you know, no matter what we spent money on, it would always come back to, all right, we have a new client. Yay. How do we get them? Oh, it was a referral or, oh, it was a networking lead. Right? So, you know, we eventually just kind of threw our hands up in the air. Not that I'm sure there is a way. We just haven't gotten to it yet. And one of the things I had to ask myself as an entrepreneur is I understand what the B2B game is. It's a long cycle. Got to spend a lot of time engendering trust proposals, RFPs, but once you land them, they're worth, you know, half a million, million, two million. I had to ask myself, is that, does that make me like light up? Does that make me happy? And as an impatient millennial, my answer is no. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I like the B2B space where like we can get two customers today and four tomorrow, six the next day. And if they're only worth 200 bucks, that's okay because I thrive on that momentum. That, that's a personal choice. Personally, the eight month sales cycle makes me want to kill myself. So that again, you know, as an entrepreneur, I have to be honest with myself. Like, what kind of life do I want to lead? What makes me fulfilled and happy, and so on? Right, right. That makes sense. So, to the agency that's sort of maybe they're a few years in and they've had some good wins, maybe they're over the, the million dollar mark and they're still, you know, going at it <laughs> and and maybe hitting a wall with it. Is there a way that they can they can sort of test that model without? Giving up on the thing that's paying the bills, basically. Is there some way that you guys have hedged your bets there? Test which model? One that's 
one that is going after that's more tech centric, like it's going after a smaller, you know, a smaller market, so to speak, or, or a lower end market with a faster sales cycle, basically. Oh, I see. Got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a good question because I know I know you were kind enough to have me on that. I seem so bearish on on the agency business and I'm not. Well, you're obviously still running it, you know. So Yeah, exactly. And there are wonderful, you know, companies and agency leaders out there. I'm actually a big fan of agency owners. I think, as I said earlier, you know, they are the, the really wise pioneers out there. And for an agency that can claim and dominate a niche, there's a lot of money and a lot of good times in it. I'd say for going after the lower market, you know, one of the things we, we always said at Gem was, you know, people would come in with a four or $5,000 a month budget. We're like, what are we going to do for that, you know, little money? We have people to employ and like systems and processes and departments, outgrowths in other countries. So we were in our own way of understanding how we would service that business. Mm-hmm. And so only through this sort of, you know, downturn that I you know, honestly shared with you that we were able to say, okay, like forget the bias we have about it. Client walks in with $300. How could we possibly deliver them something? And there are plenty of ways to do it. It was just up to us to ask the more challenging questions and then provide answers for them. And as usual, as in all things in life, if we ask the right questions, we get the right answers. So there you have it. Right, right. One one thing you mentioned earlier, and I know you're coaching lots of entrepreneurs, is that you know the the hardest is below a million, or basically getting to a million, and that's. That's obviously believable, and we kind of take it as a foregone conclusion. Why do you think that is? Why do you think the zero to the million mark is always the hardest? Yeah, I mean, on, you know, obviously, zero to one is the hardest. I mean, I don't. Looking back, I don't know how the heck we sold the first couple of things we sold. I mean, we didn't have anything. We had a crappy website with no case studies, no testimonials. This <laughs> was, so, you know, magic. Now, you know, someone can go to our website. They see Warren Buffett's picture. It's like you know, we have case studies, and it's. We can move someone through faster. They can get to know us faster. So it's much easier. But the other thing, Dan, is my life really changed once I joined YEC and, and EO. I got into an EO forum. I don't know if you're familiar with those organizations. Not too much. To be okay. Yeah. So, I mean, those you have to be at a million dollars in revenue and get, you know, referred in uh, right. to get in. And once you're in, there are just untold resources, you know, peer to peer and also, you know, within the organization. You know, how do you do all the things that you struggled to do? And it's, it's kind of like, you know, I remember my days as a figure skater. I, I was a very competitive figure skater in my youth. And I remember getting to junior nationals. And once I got there, they were like, oh, by the way, here's how you should be doing off-ice training. And here's how you should be doing nutrition. And here's how you should be structuring your practices. And I was like, well, where was all this stuff when I was trying to get here? So, yeah. you know, in recognizing that, I, I, you know, I saw the same thing in the business world. And I said to myself, you know, this is crazy that all this information and insights and perspective, you know, I think it's my duty now to pass it along to the next generation of, of entrepreneurs who have, you know, one, two, three hundred thousand dollars in revenue and are saying to themselves, why am I growing, but I have no cash? Or well, how have I gotten, you know, all these customers, but they keep leaving out the back door? Or how do I streamline my operations? Or even knowing to ask about streamlining operations. So that's why, you know, it's, it's just, I find it so much fun to work with those entrepreneurs because all of the experiences that I can give them are like, wow, I never would have thought of that. But yeah, I didn't think of it either when I was a bumbling idiot building my first company. That's just kind of the way it is. So. Yeah. And one question I like that's related to that is, is in those days, what were you worried about 
that turned out to be unfounded. Because sometimes it's easier to figure out the via negativa thing. The thing that actually didn't matter is, is to figure out the thing that you really should have been worrying about, you know? That's exactly right. There are a lot of things I should have worried about that I didn't even know to worry about. Right. There are times we were so close to bankruptcy and I had like maybe a little bit of a concept that we were, but didn't quite realize it. Yeah. And then now looking back, I'm like, hello, like I, I should have been doing this, this, that, and the other to make changes during that period. And I was just, you know, I was just too caught up in it, didn't know better, you know, entrepreneur at 22. I'm like, yay, this is fun. Yeah. Thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Related to that, you know, what are, what are the blind spots that you continue to see? And it can be in the agency space on the brand side, but what are the things that you think are going to be more and more painful for these brands to ignore? Good question. I mean, there are tons of blind spots in my own that I still have to iron out. That's one of the kind of leading ideas about EO is that it's all about illuminating blind spots. So that's a good question. I think there are a lot. So I've been interestingly watching the ebb and flow of CMOs or VPs of marketing bringing marketing in-house versus going to an agency. And this sort of seems to go in cycles. And I suppose it's telling that, you know, CMOs are the most changed C-suite executive because there's this like short-term thinking about, you know, all right, let's, let's hire this agency. Oh, they're not working and they're too expensive. Let's bring it all in house. That's the answer. And then they, oh, we have all these in-house employees, but they don't do anything. Well, why don't they do anything? Because they can't get anything done because they're stuck in the company and in the industry. So, all right, well, let's hire all them and go hire another agency. And then, you know, on and on and on. And I wish clients spent, and I just wrote this article today. So it's fresh in my mind. Like if I were on the client side, I would be, I wouldn't hire in-house. First of all, I would go out of house. I would interview a bunch of agencies. I'd go into their offices and I'd say, Hey, here are my problems. Let's have a conversation about how you would solve these problems, right? Because I believe a lot of problems within an organization, probably most, can be solved through a communication strategy. And I believe that because you might be thinking, well, how do you solve, you know, developing a new product and service? Somebody in the organization knows how to do it. If the organization's not communicating internally and getting those ideas passed around, then the organization won't develop the awesome products and services that'll move it forward. So I really, at the root, believe that most challenges are communications driven. And so as a CMO or CEO, VP of marketing, to go out into the agency world and say, help me solve my problems. In talking to 10 or 15 agencies, you're going to decide who the best long-term partner is and then partner with them long-term and let them do their job. But instead, as I noted earlier, we have this sort of cycle of short-term thinking. And I, I think that's a massive blind spot that not only holds companies, clients back, but also prevents agencies from being able to, you know, be their best selves in today's parlance. Right. And you kind of touched on something that's that's bigger than that, which I think is this idea of, of CMO attrition, right? It's it's CMOs are switched out faster than anyone any other position. So do you see how that can kind of create the incentive to not rock the boat and not think maybe not think long term? Because you're in such a you're in such a touchy, fragile place. Yeah, it depends on the person. Because sometimes I see them rocking the shit out of the boat because they want to make their mark and fast and show progress. Even though progress, and I'm doing air quotes for those of you listening, means you know looking busy and and having activities that really don't relate or help the business in a fundamental way. Right. And, and why do you think that is though? Like, why do you think the CMO is the one that is axed so easily or leaves so easily? Because because that's who the you know sales and marketing growth falls on the CMO. It's kind of nice to be any other C-suite executive because in my eyes as you know a CEO, 
Growth is everyone's responsibility, from R and D to tech to you know HR. It's, it's everyone's thing. And I think if more CEOs thought like that and had their CMO, you know, integrate much more fully, think long term, there'd be a lot better prospects. And by the way, you know who believes in all that? Warren Buffett himself. And no one can argue with how he does things. And I bet you, Dan, if you looked into his companies, Geico springs to mind. When's the last time you think they replaced their agency? I mean, they're still right now today running their old ads yep. in a best of series mm-hmm. because he thinks long-term and therefore he has long-term success. Right. All very logical. And out of Richmond, Virginia for the past 30, 50 years, you know, keeping it going. So that that's interesting because there is this sort of this sort of intimate knowledge where those companies are basically melded together at this point. Exactly. Know? And that's hard to that's hard to get away from. Mm-hmm. So I think that might be might be the theme of the conversation is is long-term thinking in a, a short-term environment, if that's not the most cliche thing in the world. <laughs> yeah, but it's critical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Peter. So honest to greatness, when can people expect that? Yeah. So anyone can go to petercosadoy.com, K-O-Z-O-D-O-Y. PeterCosadoy.com and download like a little brief synopsis about a 20 page that book from that out February 20. I know that seems far away, but you know how time flies and nothing in the publishing world moves yeah, quickly. Absolutely. They definitely think long. And I'm sure if there's any delays, you'll, you'll be very honest about them too. So. Yeah, no, there, yeah. there'll be no delays. Yeah, it's delayed yeah. enough. So exactly. Thanks so much, Peter. Appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Digital Agency Growth Podcast. Again, today we are sponsored by our company, Sales Schema. And if you want to learn about our workflow for creating a consistent drumbeat of new opportunities for agencies, please go to our website and check out our video training and other materials, which is saleschema.com. Also, if you have any questions or anything else you want to learn about, any topics you're really interested in, feel free to reach out to me directly at dan at saleschema.com. And I look forward to catching you on the next episode.